Please turn with me this morning to Isaiah chapter 5. We continue our study in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5. We will be looking at this chapter in its entirety. And so before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with the text this morning. Our Lord Jesus, as we come here now to your word and we come to another difficult passage in this book, we pray that you would help us with it. We understand the idea that you are here and that this entire story is about you, but we oftentimes get short-sighted and we see things in a real small view. And so, Lord, we need your help for understanding We need your help to see our own sin here as we read about the sin of Judah. We must understand that it is our sin as well. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to that end and that you would lead us to a deeper worship of you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as I read through this passage, it reminded me, or I was reminded, of some common themes my family and I recently discovered again the little house on the prairie which is on netflix right now and we watched the opening episode together of that show i watched it as a kid i didn't really appreciate uh charles ingles uh in that day and time but i do much more appreciate him now he was uh, if you're unfamiliar with the show little house on the prairie it's about a family in the late 1800s and their many trials as they lived in the untamed lands west of the Mississippi, Um, and Charles Ingalls is probably the hardest working man in television history, just probably that's an easy thing, to easy claim to make. He was very handy, he made almost everything from scratch, he's a pretty incredible dude. When it was time for him to move his family, he packed them up in the wagon and they moved several hundred miles away from the house in the big woods to the house on the prairie and they looked for a place to settle and they found this perfect place if you watch the show and they spent days and days or he did building their new home with lumber from the surrounding forest that he had put together just because he was a kind of dude that did that sort of thing and he built a fireplace with the rocks and he even managed to go and get some glass for the windows and he had made this really awesome house there in the middle of nowhere and they had a Christmas party, and it was on the show, and it was pretty neat, and everything was going great. And then all of a sudden, these soldiers from the government ride up and tell them that they have to move because they're on the other side of some kind of imaginary line. And all of that prep work, all that sweat and toil, only to be told, sorry, Charles, you're going to have to start all over again. So he did. And there's, that's what the whole show is about, really, the, that his new, his new house and everything else going on. Really good show, highly recommended. In our text today, there's a character in the beginning of the text that spends a lot of time and effort building something, except for it's not a house in the prairie, it's a vineyard. And he picks the right spot, and he builds this watchtower, and he creates a wine press, and all the things in a vineyard, whatever those things are. And after all the time and effort that he puts into building this perfect vineyard, wild grapes come up in the middle of it. Too sour to eat, only good for being thrown away. 
course, you probably realize by now the story isn't actually about a vine dresser and his vineyard, but it's about the Lord God and his people. The father went out of his way to for the people of Israel only to see them turn away from him time and time again. And now is the time for them to pay up. And the safety of the vineyard is no longer a thing, and the enemy is going to be allowed into that vineyard. For us, again, this is another hard passage, but hopefully we will see ourselves in this passage. We must. In many ways, we are like those wild grapes that have grown up in the vineyard of God. And we could still stand very much pruning in our own lives. One of our primary works should be working toward holiness, which we are going to see Next week, as we get into, into chapter 6, we're going to see that thrust into our face. Being a people that God has called us to be. And so as we look at this passage, I divided it into three sections. The vineyard perfected, the six woes, and then the vineyard ravaged. And so with that, we'll look together at chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Let me sing for my beloved my my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a, a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah... Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and the briars and thorns shall grow up. I will command the clouds and that the rain, that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed, and righteousness, but behold outcry. Woe to those who, who join house to house and add field to field until there is no more room, and, who, and you who may made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall, shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but one ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have harp, or lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry, and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore Sheol is enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem will mul- and mul- her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled, and each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself in righteousness. 
Then shall the lambs graze in their pasture, and nomads eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with a cart as with cart ropes, and who say, Let him be quick, let him speed his work, that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness and light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and the dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised his word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, like, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this his anger was not turned away, and his hand still is stretched out still. He will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves seem like flint and the wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like the lion, like young lions they roar, they growl and seize their prey, they carry it off and none can rescue. They growl over it on, the, on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold darkness and distress, and the light is darkening, darkened by its clouds. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So just for a bit of background, where we're at, and a little bit of review, this is the last chapter of what is generally called the prelude to the book of Isaiah. A lot of scholars look at chapter 6 as kind of being the introduction to the book, because we have Isaiah actually getting his call as a prophet in chapter 6. And so a lot of times this introductory five chapters is kind of seen as a prelude in order to introduce to us the major themes in the book. And of course, one of them is judgment, as we have seen quite a bit in these opening chapters. Many of the woes that are outlined here have to do with things that were going on when King Uzziah was on the throne. Remember, we talked about the kings that were were king during Isaiah's time, and for Uzziah, there was this people that were getting, there was a lot of uh, prosperity, the people were getting wealthy, and this kind of class of wealthy elites began to rise up in Jerusalem. And they cast aside many of the laws, and they kind of lived their lives with little regard to anything else, particularly the Word of God. They just kind of cast it out to the side. They were kind of this, of a capstone, really, or a climax to a case that had been building against Israel 
all through the times of the judges and the times of the kings. And so this wealthy class that had risen up, this elite class that thought they were better than everyone else, was really the end of Jerusalem. It was the end of this self-righteousness, this self-centered thinking, and this played out the coming of the human judges, Assyria and Babylon. And so in the next chapter, we read that King Uzziah dies. Isaiah is going to be sent out with this type of message to the people of Israel, and they aren't going to respond well. And so that brings us to the first point, the vineyard perfected. Notice there in verse 1 that Isaiah calls this a song. Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. If you read this in the original language, a lot of the words sound familiar to one another, very similar to our own poetry where words rhyme and there's, there's a kind of meter and cadence to the words. Isaiah... In this case is the singer and his beloved that he is singing about is the father playing the part of the vine dresser as he plays as we've read in other parts of scripture where the father is often compared to the one who owns the vineyard, the one who puts together the vineyard and the people of God are the vines. Again, a very common imagery. We see our own Lord Jesus doing that as well. And so look there in verses one and two. My, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a vine, a, a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it wielded or yielded wild grapes. Notice the care that is taken for this new vineyard. It's a very much Charles Ingalls kind of thing as he built his cabin for his family. He took a lot of care, only the very best for his family. He was very careful in how he crafted it. And so very much so, the Lord was very careful in how he crafted this vineyard for his people. What hill did he choose? A very fertile hill. All the stones were cleared away. And if you've ever seen a picture of Israel and the ground in Israel, there are lots of stones. That's basically what Israel is. He built a watchtower in the middle of this vineyard. Remember we read earlier in an earlier chapter about what was typically found in the middle of these fields. These little lean-to shacks. Remember the, the shack in the middle of the cucumber field. Well, this wine dresser built an actual watchtower in the middle of his vineyard. Pretty cool. Instead of just a normal wooden wine vat, he actually hewed one out of stone. And so he crafted this wine vat out of stone. It's a permanent thing. He's, he's not creating this temporary vineyard. He's, he's attempting to create this very permanent place for his vines. Everything is set. And now he's planted these vines and they're the choice vines and only to see when they start to come up, they are wild vines instead of the choice vines that he planted. Apparently, those vines that he had planted about had been choked out and never came up. Instead, these wild ones that had a sort of sour berry came out of the ground. 
the Hebrew here for wild wild grapes could literally be interpreted as stink fruit. Just as a smelly fruit that no one wants. It's no good for anything. Instead of choice grapes, he has just plain garbage. Nothing good for anyone. And so notice what he says, the vine dresser, in verses 3 and 4. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? What's he saying? In other words, please show me how I could have created a better situation for these vines that I've planted. I made the perfect place for them. By all accounts, those vines should be thriving. They should be doing wonderful, but instead they are stinking. They're gross. So what was the Lord's choice regarding his vineyard? Verses 5 and 6. I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, its protection. There's no longer going to be protection around this vineyard. It's going to be devoured. I will break down its wall. It will be trampled. I will make it a waste. It will not be pruned or hoed. The briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. He's going to let it go to pot. All the work that has been done will just go away. Nature will take over in a few short years. That perfect vineyard will be no more. It will be erased. Verse 7, why did he do that? Because he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Instead of this justice, he found bloodshed, injustice. Instead of righteousness, he found chaos, nothing good. He looked for ripe grapes, but instead found stink fruit. Don't let the application here be lost on you, brothers and sisters, at this church. Because it would be very easy for us to leave this in the 8th century B.C. when things like uh, vineyards were still around and important. It could be very comfortable for us to say, yeah, yeah, show me something that applies to me. Well, read it again if you don't think it applies to you. The Lord has given us more than we could ever ask or imagine. We certainly look at that in our own lives as individuals and we feel very blessed, all of us, to one degree or another. But look at ourselves collectively as Redeemer Community Church and see how he has blessed us, this church, over the last few years. Just look at the provisions that we have. Just take a ride down Doran Road. If you want to see the blessings that he has given us, look here at our people. Look around you. Look at the blessings that we have here even amongst us. He has blessed us more than we could ever ask or imagine. If we had been told, we wouldn't have believed it. He has blessed us that much. Are we going to be stink fruit? Are we going to be wild vines rather than the choice vines that the Father's planted? Because he's planted choice vines. He has put a watchtower among us. He has hewed out the stone vat. He has done everything. There's nothing more that can be done that he hasn't done for us. 
Are we going to take the good gifts of the Lord and let the world then come in and take us over so that there's nothing left? So that if they were to look at us a few years from now, we don't even look any different than the world. We look just like our surroundings. Is that what's going to happen to us? If you think it couldn't happen, then we're already on our way. We need to closely guard ourselves against these things. We must pray diligently that he would keep it from us, that he would protect us. We must check our own hearts and our minds, and we must guard them, and we must measure them against the standard of the only truth that we have in his word. Perfect vineyard today equals overrun wasteland tomorrow if we don't guard ourselves against his word. With his word. We must always guard ourselves against the world and hold closely to the things that he has given us. That brings me to the next point, the six woes. So in the following 18 verses or so, he pronounces six woes. And the word woe is, I mean, we all know what the word woe means. W-O-E. It's the opposite of blessing. It's like a curse. We see Jesus pronouncing woes on the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Jesus was not very fond of the Pharisees, particularly the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. That's what we see him constantly talking about. And he pronounces all these woes in Matthew 23 concerning their hypocrisy. And so here in Isaiah, we see woes against a number of things. And after he says, woe is this and woe against that, he says, a therefore, this is what's going to happen because of what you have done. These are the consequences of your actions, Israel. In verse 8, we have this woe to those who join house to house. And he goes, goes on talking about these giant estates. What's happening here? Well, it's against the greedy and against this idea of land grabbing. God gave a land to the people with the intention that it would always remain within the families that it was given to. You can go back into Leviticus and read about this, particularly Leviticus 25. There's this idea of everyone has a land that's given to them and it will always be their land. So what do we have in the time of King Uzziah? Well, we have this rise of wealth. People began buying up all of these large estates for themselves. Which is not good if you're the poor person who can no longer afford to keep their own land. The land that was promised to them. The rich just continue to get richer. The poor continue to get poorer. And so again, the injustice that's brought up all throughout these first five chapters we see here as well. What will come of it? Well, verses 9 and 10. Surely many houses shall be desolate. Large, beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, a homer of seed, one ephah. Basically, they're going to be unproductive and they're going to be desolate. Verse 11, he gives a woe against hedonism and drunkenness and debauchery. Rather than focusing on the deeds of the Lord, they're focusing on their own pursuit of pleasure. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who 
who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them and goes on and on about their, their partying. But they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. And what is the result of this? Well, verses 13 and 14. Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry. Their multitude is parched with thirst. And verse 14. Therefore Sheol, or Sheol, has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. That's just the Hebrew word for the grave. And so they're hungry, thirsty. They all go down to the grave. The Lord shows himself to be a righteous man. Verses there 15 and 16. Man is humbled, for each one is brought low, and the eyes of the haughty are brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in his justice. He shows himself to be righteous and just. Man is humbled and brought low. And you kind of get this, this idea of this drunkenness and this debauchery and this land grabbing and this, this greed. All of this culminates into what you see in verse 17. Then shall the lambs graze as in their pasture and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Those large estates and those drunken parties, now the nomads wander around and pick among the ruins of these houses. It reminded me when I read through this of 1 Corinthians 10.12, if anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Again, we have to see ourselves in the mirror as we read through these texts. Verses 18 and 19, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with a cart ropes, who say, Let him be quick, Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. What is happening here? This is the people of God hearing the judgment of God and saying, yeah, bring it on. We're ready for you, God. Go ahead. Show us what you can do. Challenging God to go ahead and bring the judgment. That he's talking about. Can you imagine the rank arrogance that this takes? Just keep reading. They get all that they asked for. And more. Verse 20 through 23. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Again, just continuing on this idea of woes that outline the self-righteousness and the hedonism of Judah during the time of King Uzziah. So for a moment, imagine how this would read if this wasn't against Judah and Jerusalem, but again, this was against the United States today. Imagine if Isaiah was the prophet and he came and he was speaking to our own country today. Would he be praising our Christian forefathers or the massive spirituality that we appeared to have because of all the churches in our town? Is that what he would do? No, his words would be the exact same. A judgment for our hedonism, for our self-righteousness of our own society, 
in our own hearts. And his actions would be the same. 24. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours stubble, and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so the root will be as rottenness, and their blossom will go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them, his people, and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger anger was not turned away, and his hand is outstretched still. These are not nice words to the people of God. And so imagine Isaiah is saying them to us, which he is saying them to us, by the way. So what do we have to say as a church to a generation who should be hearing these same woes against them? What message do we have for a country that is spiraling out of control toward the grave whose mouth is open wide and ready to receive them? Would we tell them that we have the best coffee in town? Would we tell them, would we post our set list for worship this Sunday morning? Would we tell them of our purpose or our vision or some other jargon? Or do we tell them about the only one who can save them? There's only one way. Jesus Christ. And he doesn't want to be your pal. He is your Lord. He doesn't want to be your Lord. He is your Lord. Whether you call on him or not, he is your Lord. So what should our message be? Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and be saved. Repent and believe in the name of Jesus Christ. There is no other name who can save you. There is no other one. I have no other message. The woes featured in this text pale in comparison to the daily devastation that an eternity in hell will feature. Assyria and Babylon were only temporary in the grand scheme of things. In hell, if you've been there a million years, you've only just begun. What will our message be, church? And that brings me to the last point. The vineyard ravaged. Verse 26. He will raise a signal. He, the Lord, will raise a signal for the nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily, they come. If you're Israel, this might be one of the scariest things that you could hear the prophet Isaiah say. One day, God is going to whistle for your enemies to come and they will listen and they will hear and they will come quickly. Why did the enemies come? Again, read verse 26 again. Why did they come? Did they decide, yep, this is a good day to attack Israel? No, they came because the Father whistled for them and they came. Well, God took a bad thing and He made it better. No, God called the enemies to come in. It was part of His plan. Verses 27 through 30. Just read through that. 
And what? how does he describe the enemies that are coming against the people of God? None is weary. None stumble. None slumber or sleep. Their waistband is not loose. Their sandal strap is not unbroken. Their arrows sharp. Their bows are bent. Just keep reading. They're not coming to play. What a description of a coming enemy that's coming to seize and destroy the people of God. Why? Because there was stink fruit. Because there were wild grapes. Because the Lord made a fantastic place for them and they exchanged it for the lies of the world. It's incredible to think that the Lord could even use the nations of the earth to do His bidding. And He does all the time. And He still does so. Even more to think that He could raise up a nation for a particular task, like Babylon, for instance, and then crush them when He's finished with them. It may sound harsh, but this is the Lord, and He does as He wills. All kingdoms are His kingdoms, and they will all one day bow down to Him. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Verses 15 through 18. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was a loud voice the loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, get this, the nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants and prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. In those last days, everything is going to be made right. God is going to settle the dust. He destroys the destroyers. And he gives reward to those who are righteous. And again, our righteousness is not found in ourselves, but only in Christ our Lord. Those enemies that he whistled for, he's going to destroy. Who gets the reward? Those who fear his name. And this is important, this is important for us to hear because with all these woes and the failed vineyard, it is not about a nation who did not or it is about a nation who did not fear the Lord. It's about a nation who looked at the fruit and saw that it was a delight to its eyes and they ate it. Back to Genesis 3 again. In their sin, they earned the judgment of God. In our sins, we earn the judgment of God. And how do we escape that judgment? Again, the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because he is the only one who earned the reward. And with his death, he bought for his people remission from sin. And with his resurrection, the promise of eternal life. No longer death, but life in him. And so in conclusion, Redeemer, let us be a church that isn't stink fruit. The Lord has blessed us with a perfect vineyard. He's given us so much. And so let us grow and thrive where he has us. 
Let us see his name glorified to the ends of the earth. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we cannot look around and name a single other thing that you could give us. We could not look around and, and see where you have somehow cut us short. Because you have blessed us abundantly. You have given us all that we could ever ask or imagine. And so Lord, please help us to live as we ought to live. To glorify your name, not our own name. Lord, let us never seek our own glory. Let us never seek our own fame. But instead, the fame of our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.